Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good evening. It's a Muzi Shabbos. It's a... <laughs> I'm on a screwball schedule. I'm actually do something I usually don't do until Sunday, but I'm all out of whack. I came down with the corona. I was the coughing the other day, <clears throat> which I'm not totally out of. And, uh, you know, I'm taking all the medicine and so forth. <clears throat> uh, and the worst of it is today's, tonight is my yard site for my father. So I can't go to Shoal and Cottage and all that business. And, uh, <clears throat> no, I can't do. I usually do a semen tomorrow. Listen, you know, it is what it is. But um, I do hope tomorrow to... Uh, can't do the semen exactly, but I had a hydrant prepared. Maybe I, I hope to do that on Zoom for some people who are going to, uh, you know, participate or something like that. Uh, I doubt if everybody wants to hear that. But uh, I'll, put, I'll, I'll put it up if, if anyone's interested. Tonight... <coughs> Uh, I had a, so I had a funny experience over Shabbos uh, in terms of what I'm going to choose for uh, who I want to talk about today for the biography. Uh, but before I do, I want to say that this is being sponsored by the Elbams, Ari and Heather Elbam, because sadly Heather's uncle passed away this past week. Uh, her father Moshe's brother. This is another Israel Aaron sus. Israel Aaron ben Bezra Levi. Um, Sorry to hear that. It, and it says, he said, any information? He's a New Yorker, born in the Lower East Side, and lived here his whole life. Whole life? Lived in the Oh, so he was there all the time. Wow, imagine that. That means you're there from the 1930s to the 2000s in the Lower East Side. You've seen some changes. His parents, the Niftus parents came from Galicia in the 30s. His father, Abezrat Smicha, from Adumbra Vergon. That's the Chazon Nochem that I spoke about before. And the Shabina Rabbin was their gabai, so he moved in some heady circles over there. These are the, with the Torah elite that we spoke about some months ago. Uh, he went to Torah Das in the 50s, okay. And when his parents came to America, they opened a deli and a catering hall, and where Heather's uncle noticed that Nifter helped serve poor Jews in the Lower East Side and Shabbos Yantav. That's the European element. That's in the, that's what they call, you know, like the Ramos says, you can't have a Yantav without Orkham. He continued to meet of Chesed throughout his life. He became a big Baal Tzedek and a Baal Chesed. He learned every day with his grandson, who's named after Father Ezra. And he was a family man. His children were his whole life. He was a good man and a good brother to Heather's father, Mosh. <coughs> yeah, so he's a Chobarch, as they say. I'm sorry to hear about that. <coughs> as I said, I've had a screwball Shabbos. And... You know, because when you have the COVID, you, you know, this doesn't work, and that doesn't work, you know, the taste buds and all that. And um, <clears throat> so I couldn't sleep. And uh, without giving you my medical history, I just sat around, so I, you know, my head isn't on, on regular. And so <clears throat> I picked up a book and read it from cover to cover. A couple of weeks ago, I guess, I was in Rochester, and one of the things I talked about over there <clears throat> was... Um, the story about uh, a Japanese gear um, and his encounter with uh, Parshas, whatever Parsha was over there, with Armavino. And uh, I spoke maybe once or twice, uh, several times. This would be Professor Katsuji, Abraham Katsuji. And uh, when I went there, I haven't seen the book that he wrote, which he wrote in 1964, this guy, this Japanese guy. And I read it when I was a kid. In other words, in other words when I was a teenager in the old uh, Hebrew college that used to exist that I've spoken about from time to time, nostalgically. And uh, because there wasn't a commonly read book. And uh, but I remembered it, remembered parts of it anyway. And for some reason or other, it came to mind when I went to Rochester. And when I was there, before I went, I said, I don't want to schlep the book with me to from Baltimore. Uh, because I have a limited weight on the plane. And so some of the people in Rochester were nice enough to get it from the Rochester Library. 
And, you know, I said to myself, you know, the heck with it. When I go to Baltimore, I should get it. I don't own the book. I don't think it's around so much. Uh, it's called From from uh, Tokyo to Jerusalem. And uh, but Hopkins Library, my, my university library has it. And so I got it from them. <clears throat> I was lying around the house and I didn't look at it. But today, this, this Shabbos, being this strange Shabbos citizen, go to Shoal, you know, stuck home with the corona and all the rest of it. <clears throat> so for some reason, I picked up the book and read it from cover to cover. There's about 200, 220 pages, something like that. And I'm still under the impact of that. And it's a very interesting story. Maybe when I read it, I was much younger, didn't appreciate it historically as much as I do now, and I want to share that with you. So I'm departing from the usual to talk about, but it's not really departing from the usual to talk about a Garrett Sedek. We consider a Garrett Sedek actually be a very high madrega. That I've spoken of from time to time. Even if it's a weirdo Garrett Sedek, uh, as in this case, but it would have to be coming from Japan in the 100 years ago. <clears throat> it have to be. Uh, not everybody knows that much about the history of Japan. I'm not a specialist myself. I know more than people who don't know. Uh, and <clears throat> Japan, is, is, I think you can understand yourself that there weren't any Jews in Japan. There's no Judaism. And yet we have a story over here of a guy who like, in a weird way, you might say Mina Shemayim was like pushed in the direction of it, even having no idea what Judaism and Jews are, and being discouraged from ever discovering what they are, and yet Hashem has a plan for everybody. I don't want to sound too frummy dummy. And you certainly see in this case, although his road to Judaism was paved very heavily with ignorance, which is probably a good reason why somebody would have been guided. The more you know about the Jews, why would you want to join not Judaism, the Jews. <clears throat> uh, and so, here we go. We're talking about somebody, uh, his name was Sinchino or something like that, uh, Katsuji. I have enough trouble with the last name, but the first name was in Japanese. I forget what it was. It doesn't even matter, right? Sezuzo. Uh, and uh, the interesting part is to hear somebody came from a very religious family in Japan. But what's so interesting, strange to us, is you and I, listening, I'm sure, are Westerners. We're not from the Far East. And so our ideas of religion, it seems to me, have a certain, you know, uh, kvias. We know about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Those are the three gigantic religions. And they are gigantic. And they all have a lot in common. Obviously, they're the Chalukim. That's why we're not all the same. But we have a lot in common. It's no secret that Christians and the Muslim picked, you know, stole it out of Judaism. Took it out of Judaism. But in Asia, you have all these other religions no one's ever heard of before. And they have completely different characteristics of religion. And one of them is in Japan. They have Shinto. So notice in Japan, they had the Buddhists and the Shinto. But the Shinto is the old religion. And this guy came from a family for a thousand years or more from Shinto Kohanim. But in Japan, religion doesn't mean what you and I think it means to us here. We think of a Japan a religion with God and uh, an origin of the universe and a set of moral laws and uh, morality and ethics being high in there, Scharva Onish, things like that. What if I told you this religion it doesn't have those elements necessarily? And I'm going by what he describes in the book, and it's a very interesting book. If you have a chance to read it, I'll tell you to read it, From Tokyo to Jerusalem, simply because he affords a foreigner, in my opinion, a very interesting insight, a flash of insight into a different culture and religion, which I don't think he's even around today so much in Japan, although I don't know. I could be wrong. Because uh, I know in Japan religion is down, but that only means former religion is down. I know even to this day, a lot of Japanese have, I'm going to use a word I shouldn't use, but I, but I use it because of this audience. Difference between between um, religion and superstition. Now that's always a matter of subjectivity. But some subjective, okay, right? So the the, the Japanese have been around for a long time, but it, I don't want to go into that whole history. The Ainu and then the Korean and the Chinese immigrants from 1800 years ago, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Suffice it to say that there developed uh, a certain avodah and I mean literally avodah idol worship, 
And when I say out of worship, it's not a matter of sticks and stones. It's a matter of believing in different kochos, animism, they call it. And so you don't believe in one God, but you believed in gods and the divine powers distributed among all kinds of things. And that's an ancient type religion. It's still around. And that's the religion which he was raised in. But it has to do more, if I understand it correctly, with stories and myths and things <clears throat> explaining forces of nature, rather than anybody coming down like a Moshe Rabbeinu type or whatever, or even Lahavdo, you know, some of these other uh, religion founders, with clear moral directions of what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and why you should, and why you shouldn't. And by the time he's coming along, and he's born in 1899, uh, the religion in which he grows up is one which is super focused on Lamaisa and not the Tamiya Mitzvahs, to use Jewish language. There aren't any Tamiya Mitzvahs. It's all Lamaisa. You understand? You do this ritual, you do that ritual, you light this fire, you do this thing, you do the thing. It's full of all these little offerings, never animals or living things. It's always like, you know, plants and whatever. That's the way they do it over there. And, uh, and you're supposed to be punctilious in your performance of Shinto Mitzvahs. Why you do that? That's how he describes it, as I understand it. You're identifying with your ancestors, with your past. You're loyal to your family and national traditions. And thus, Alain gives you a tremendous chiyas. So, there are from Jews like that. <laughs> I get news for you. You know, why are you doing what you do? I don't know. I wake up in the morning, I daven, I put on phone. I don't know why, I don't care. My father did it, I'll do it too. Invite her, you know. Okay. You know, I'll come say before that that that's that's one way, but there are other ways. That's why you have the Tommy and Mrs. people and trying to understand what's going on. But you hear the Vart. But what if I told you the whole country's like that? It's just interesting, you understand? And he grows up in a family of that sort, um, from very big Yichas, and he's from Kyoto, Kyoto, which is like the headquarters of this culture. Kyoto was a was very lucky in World War II because they weren't bombed. Uh, all the Japanese cities were flattened, you know, by the Americans because they attacked us at Pearl Harbor. So, yeah, I'll get you back. And, um, but the American Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, I just remember this. I have all these random things right around. The Secretary of War during the Second World War was Henry Stimson, who was an old man. And uh, he was a. Wasp blue blood, you might say. <laughs> he was Secretary of State under Hoover, for example. And when Stimson got married long before and had his uh, honeymoon, his Shabbat or whatever, went to Kyoto, you know, as a rich American, I don't know, around 1900, whatever. And he was so enchanted with the city that 40 years later, when he, so pretty with all these temples and gongs and stuff like that, 40 years later in World War II, he said, bomb everything, don't bomb Kyoto. <laughs> So life is strange in that way. So this guy grows up super headquarters of the Shinto, super beautiful Japanese culture, if you're into that stuff. That was the, the belly button of the epicenter of Japanese culture. And I mean that in a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> Even though it's totally strange to us. And it is Mamish Avodazara. I mean, I'm just being very clear over here. But okay, that's how they develop. And the Japanese do have an ethical system but it seems to be taken from the other religions that they allowed in there. It's the Shinto, but they also have the Buddhists. The Buddhists have a certain ethicist, ethics kind of thing, and especially Confucianism. Confucius is not a religion. It, it is a system of ethics. So that's how they did it. The reason I'm mentioning all this is it's very hard to figure out the Japanese, and the Americans learned this to their um, horror in World War II because they behaved very brutally to the Japs. I mean, the, the Japs behaved very brutally to the Americans, and to the Chinese, <clears throat> in terrible ways. And other people, they didn't treat so bad at all. You know, they behaved in a correct way. So, it, it, the story today is one about one culture failing to understand the other culture, even as, it, as, as they try to. I remember this when I was a kid when they had the Vietnam War. We didn't know what the heck was going on over there. You know, they thought they did, but you, you just don't get it. It's going in the culture of another country very often. As often as it is. <laughs> Now, this kid grew up in the Japanese culture, uh, and his father, you know, they had money, and they weren't loaded, but they, came, they had tremendous yichas. Apparently in Japan, if I'm, if I'm believing what he writes in the book, I have no reason not to, yichas is like everything. So if you have tremendous yichas that you're, uh, l like I'm a coin, 
Suppose in Judaism, you really took very seriously that cats is a coin, and therefore your grandfather was Aaron. And people would step aside for you and say, wow, you're Aaron. Oh, that's Chashev. I want to marry your family. Instead of simply saying, there's Allah, you got to be Mechavah coin to give him, give him a first aliyah, you know, like that. What if they took it as in, in a charismatic, passionate sense? That seems to be what it is over there. So Yichas he had, he went to school and all the rest of it. But along the line, <clears throat> the questions that we would, that, that Westerners would say, which is why, why, why? Why am I doing this? Is there a God beyond all this business and all the rest of it? Seemed to have been interested as, as a young kid. So he's almost like an Avramovino in the sense that in the middle of Japan, where there's nothing to do whatsoever with Judaism or anything like that, you know, Meatsmo, Hischilismoa, you know, he, he's just wondering that you know, there must be something beyond all this stuff. It must be a bore of some sort or another. There must be a grand story. But how are you going to get to it in Kyoto? You see, in a very from nice and from, I mean, nice according to the Japanese system, you know, the parents there have a different way. How are you going to get to that? <clears throat> and he tells the story, in other words, that uh, eventually, as a kid, as 13, whatever, he discovers the Bible. It's a Christian Bible, of course. Um, Christianity in Japan is very interesting <clears throat> because obviously Japan was never Christian, but back in the time of 1492 and afterwards, for about 100 years after 1492, the Portuguese and the, and the Spanish, believe it or not, tried to convert um, the Japanese, and they came close. It's interesting. At one point, they came close. Uh, they wanted to convert the whole Japan to Roman Catholic. There was eventually a a uh, reaction against this, and they killed out all the Christians because uh, they saw them as a threat, which they were, and Japan was a closed country, as we will all remember from junior high school, whatever you call it, until Commodore Perry in the 1850s opened it up with the American Navy. And uh, when that happened, all the American uh, missionaries flocked in Japan, and they've been there since. And they tried to convert to the Japanese. Well, they had a very limited success, but they had some success. They had some success. And uh, our hero gets schlepped into this because he reads the Bible. And it's so interesting. If I had time, I would read you the chapter. It's right to die. He says he opens it up. And remember, it's a Bible in Japanese translation from the Missionary Society. And so he's reading Genesis. And, you know, uh, a lot of it is strange to him, especially the begats. But when he gets to Abraham, and God says, Somehow that really touched the bell in him, you know? And when he goes weiter, and especially when he gets to the parts where he sees the three malachim, and he says, you know, the Oriental courtesy, which was Avram does Achanas's Orchim, he said, that's a Japanese guy. And and the whole book of Bracious, from the time you get to Lechelon, just captivated him. This is what he writes. And then he went weiter into Shmos, and that really also blew him away. He could identify with the... Uh, uh, Avodim and Mitzrayim, and then with the Geula, all the parshas we're reading about, and so on and so forth. Then he says he gets the Vayigra. He said, "This is this is a Shinto, <laughs> right? It's a Shinto. Tuma, Tahira, Carbonus, rituals. Don't tell you why. It's just rules. That's exactly said the Shinto. You know, it's rules. So he wasn't turned off by that. And I remember how he went through the rest of the Chumash. He didn't like Devarim. He did like by Midbar." But this really turned him on. And naturally, as a child, I'm talking about 13, 14 years old, <clears throat> he said, I guess, whatever happened to Avram? Well, you know how it goes. The Torah takes you through the story of the family of Abraham up to a certain point. Up to a certain point. Then you lose him. So he was just fascinated because Hashem said already at the beginning, <laughs> What happened to this group? And yeah, he doesn't know. Now, the missionaries he comes across, if you ever ask what happened to those people, he says, ask the Jews, you're not interested in that. No, I'm interested. What happened to them? Don't worry about it. The Jews are garnished. You know, they gave up, they didn't believe in Yashka, said ever they left the scene. They're, they're wiped out, they're gone, all the rest of it. And, you know, for a certain amount of time, he believed it. 
But then it's bothering him. Then why would God make such a promise? <laughs> and then have them all wiped out. You know, it just didn't bother him. And meanwhile, little by little, without going through the whole book, he gets schlepped into Christianity in Japan and converts. Okay. It's a little bit of a bummer for his family because, you know, imagine a guy was a coin for a thousand years and now he said, I want to switch to become Israel or a, or, or a Christian. <laughs> but okay, the family did it. And he went off to, the, I don't know, the, the missionary school, whatever, the, the um, college sort of thing that they had in Tokyo. And little by little, he got pushed. He went more and more into the Christian study. He became a Christian minister. It's quite unusual. And they said, very good, you be a Christian minister, help spread Christianity in, in, in Japan. But he says to himself, he says, uh, you know, the Jewish part of Christianity I get. The Christian part of Christianity I don't get. Why would you say the Yashka would be a God? You know, I don't know. How does that work with the Old Testament? And anyway, do you believe in one God? Do you believe in two or three? And it's fascinating. He talks to some of the leading Christian professors in Japan. Reichauer, I remember him. He was a very famous missionary guy. I'm just telling you what he says in the book. And he says, what's the business, you know, with Jesus and being a God and all the rest of it? I mean, doesn't that sound like you have two gods? And, and he shepherded him. He wouldn't let him go till finally the professor... The big Christian professors, I guess, look, maybe there is a certain amount of dualism in the Christian religion. What can I tell you? You know, <laughs> which is pretty shocking, right? I mean, I thought you believe in God, and they claim you do, but when you push him against the wall, he said no. So all this stuff was a turnoff, and so you have a funny story, which I'm sure is not the only time, which a guy is slept deep, deep into Christianity, becomes a minister, and eventually has a church and all the rest of it, but really deep down, he doesn't believe it. You get it? And the guy said, a lot of people don't believe, which is, you know, like you tell a kid who's going off the derech, just do it and eventually you'll come to believe it. Like that. That's exactly what they tell him. Of course, you know from the fact I'm talking about tonight that it doesn't happen that way. And he just, you know, like the Old Testament is what works for me. The New Testament doesn't speak to me. You're talking about the Chumash, about Yeshayahu, about the Tehillim, that talks to me. This is new, you know, the, the Matthew and Paul and all the rest, it doesn't talk to me. And Paul's making it, he says, he says, Paul's making it up as he goes along. You see? And, you know, there are um, many uh, Christians who they take the religion very seriously, um, study the Bible and all the rest of it. There's one of the reasons that they become Garyetetic, because of the intense study of the Bible, um, which is interesting, because from Jews, one knows, from Jews don't study the Bible. <laughs> Um, anyhow, now, mind you, a guy like this knows nothing about the Jews, hasn't read anything ever about them, doesn't know about anti-Semitism because there aren't any Jews in, in Japan, uh, except to the degree that I mentioned a couple weeks ago that he lived as a kid through the Russian-Japanese War. Everybody's talking about Jacob Schiff, how he helped Japan in the war. But that's it. You understand? Eventually he gets married and so on and so forth. And he wants to get a PhD, and he moves to and he spends a couple of years in America in the twenties, I guess, late twenties, going for advanced training, first in Auburn, New York, where he and when he gets off the boat in in San Francisco to to travel, he meets another Japanese guy. He says, "Whatever happened to Abraham's family?" He says, "Oh, that's the Jews." He's like shocked. You mean the Jews are still alive? Yeah, but he told me the missionary school they weren't there. Well, they're still here, and he even says. You know, like, what are they? He says, I don't know. The Japanese guy says, I, I saw a synagogue once. I wanted to walk in, but I got I got all confused. I came and I, I, I took my hat off. I thought that's a good thing. And they screamed at me, put the hat on. You know, <laughs> I didn't get it. And this guy says, oh, that's just like in the Bible. They said, put your hat on. You see, the Jews are still alive. And while he's taking these advanced courses, he eventually gets a PhD in some court in Berkeley. In Berkeley. In Semitic, uh, I don't know, languages or something like that. He's a linguist. He studied languages. And by the way, his mess of studying is like the old yeshivas. Chazer 200 times, 300 times. You just read it and then reread it and reread it and reread it and so on and so forth. That's that's what he says. That's all. That's very interesting. And so, uh, eventually, he's moving around in these high-level Christian universities and seminaries. And he's learning Hebrew well because the way he was taught in Japan was a joke. And being the type of guy he is, he wants to know his subject well. And when you read Hebrew well, you can study the Bible. And by the way, he said like this, Yeshayahu, I hope I get this right, 
I found very interesting. Yechezkel, I don't know. What Isaiah can say in three sentences, Yechezkel takes a hundred uh, lines. That's how much what Chazal say. That one is a ben uh, ear and the other one's a ben uh, kfar or something like that, you know. To Yishai Yechezkel, I thought it was very interesting. Anyway, uh, and then he says, is there a Talmud? And he meets a guy who's like a Meshuman and says, Dad, you don't want to study the Talmud. No, I'm interested in the Talmud. The Talmud's all baloney. But, well, you know, he said like this, did Jesus study the Talmud? Probably. No, so I don't want to study Talmud. And you see what I'm saying? He doesn't meet Jews, and he doesn't do this, and doesn't do that, from a strictly artificial basis, working through a totally Geisha world, he finds himself drawn constantly to to the Old Testament, to Judaism, even though he doesn't know exactly what it is. And he has these moments of communion with God, he says, in which he feels like he's talking to the God of the Jews. So you see, this is clearly an example, not that I'm an expert, nobody is, of certain types of game They say like this, I was just born with a Jewish neshama, because that's what you see over here. Everything's militating against... Now, I'm, not every gear is like that. At least I'm not a Makobo, I don't you know. I'm not every gear is like that. Um, and some, uh, certainly not. But there are those that they don't know why, but just in the crate, the guy could be Eskimo, you know what I mean? There are guys at Shinto in Kyoto. They just find themselves drawn magnetically all across life in this direction to be interested constantly in not only Judaism, but the Jewish people. Because one without the other is nothing. And that's profound what I just said. So you keep going on like that. Now, uh, up to this point, it's just a moderately interesting story. I wouldn't be talking about this. It's going to have to do with Jewish history. But you see, the Hashkacha protest works in a funny way. When, by the time you get to the 30s, he got his PhD from, in Semitic or something or other in Hebrew. And so when he moves back to Japan around 1930-31, he basically knew Hebrew and probably Jewish stuff because he studied up on it better than any other Japanese, probably. <laughs> right? And he did it in an coming, as I said before, from a fresh perspective, untainted by anything else. What am I mean? There were another, listen closely, there were another set of Japanese who were studying Jews and Judaism from a poisoned perspective in the 1920s and 1930s. <clears throat> right? From a poisoned perspective. What do I mean? If you look at the map, Japan is not far from Russia. Russia down to Vladivostok. If you go across Vladivostok, you're already in Japan. Yeah, I mean, it's hundreds of miles, but you know, it's straight across. So there's a, it's Kamchatka, you know. So, um, or Irkutsk, whatever it is. The part, the, at the end of Russia in the Pacific Ocean, Mul Japan is opposite Japan. <laughs> Therefore, Japan and Russia have been fighting it out ever since the Russian Japanese War, which was in 1904. But, excuse me, in World War I, in the aftermath of World War One, Japan, along with some other countries, invaded Russia. Uh, and the communists took over. I don't want to go into all that. But there's a certain rough relationship between the, the two sides. The Russians, especially the anti-communist ones, they're exactly the ones who created the Protocols of Zion. They were in the 1920s and 30s, the, before Hitler came along, the single most vicious anti-Semitic group it's quite a statement I made. And they murdered Jews when they have a chance. And they were all over the Far East because they ran away from communism. And a lot of them settled <clears throat> in areas like Manchuria, Korea, Japan. And <clears throat> wherever they settled, they spread anti-Semitic poison. Who's the... Lenin is Jewish. Stalin is Jewish. It's all a Jewish plot. They're out to take over the world. Japan's going to get screwed. Watch out for the Jews, etc., etc. And they believed it. No, they wrote the lies. They believed it. X number of Japanese officers and big shots bought into this stuff. Now, from your perspective, my perspective, it's possibly an educated idiot, meaning you can have education, but not know how the greater world works. They didn't go around the world and know who the Jews are. There weren't hardly many Jews. 
there were a tiny handful of Jews in Kobe and places like that. You know, a couple of uh, Russian and uh, Sephardi merchants, the Iranian Jews, things like that. A few, but not really any Jewish community in Japan. And here you have these Ruskies all over the area putting out various versions of the protocols of elder design. Similar as they, they want to kill the emperor, they want to take over Japan, they want to rule the world, and so on and so forth. So there was a whole group of Japanese officials, especially army officers, who said, oh, we know who the Jews are. They, they're experts. They studied Hebrew, but like I say, in a poisoned way to be able to fight against the Jews. So our hero finds himself in a funny situation in the 30s. He tries to make a living as the Depression, teaching Hebrew. He sets up a Hebrew institute and teaching about Judaism. Isn't that interesting? Teaching about Judaism. In other words, in all the seminaries, the Christian seminaries, they taught about Judaism, but in a stupid way. The Jews were everything until they rejected Jesus. Ever since then, they're nothing. I mean, that's what it boils down to. And there's a lot more to Judaism than that. So, and his classes, he said, were fascinating. And he attracted students or whatever. And he built a reputation. He published a Hebrew dictionary, you know, things like that. As somebody's an expert in Jewish stuff for for Japan. And remember, he's a super Japanese. He uh, comes from the biggest Japanese, Yichus, and so forth. Now, what comes to the part that's no gay to us. Uh, if you look at the map, and if you don't know the map, I can't help but you got to Google it. And what you want to do is you want to Google the world in the 1920s and 1930s, the, uh, the Far East. There's Japan, and across the water is Korea, and behind that is China. But the northern part of China is Manchuria, which is very large. If I remember correctly, Manchuria is several times the size of Texas. It's big. It has a lot of economic potential. Now, China was very weak at that time. And Japan made a big mistake, but they just grabbed, invaded, and took over Manchuria and turned it into a Japanese puppet state. Now they're big territory. They thought that they could turn it into a lot of money. And they turned out you can't turn in a lot of money. Manchuria has a lot of resources, but unless you invest a zillion dollars, you won't be able to develop them. And Japan was poor. On the other hand, there were, in the 1930s, starting lots of Jews to move into Manchuria and those areas. What do I mean a lot of Jews? He says in the book 300,000. He's nuts. There were five or 6,000 Jews by 1930 in, in, in Manchuria. It's right next to Russia. So a lot of Jews who went away from Stalin moved to Manchuria. These are like Mukden, Harbin, Dairin, Port Arthur, and places like that. These cities which now Chinese names because they are Chinese or Manchurian. Uh, there are Jewish communities there. Um, it's a very big territory. And the Japanese army now controlled it. And this mess of 1931 eventually developed into a major war with China, between Japan and China, in which the Japanese were very brutal, but they defeated and beat the Chinese a lot and a lot, again and again. Um, and this is when Chiang Kai-shek was the head of China. Anyhow, this is when Hitler's coming to power in Germany. Jews are running away from Europe. As you know, no country would take them in. Some went to Shanghai, as we know because they didn't have any, uh, you know, uh, immigration restrictions. Uh, what about Manchuria? This was a hot-button item in the late 30s, when it was desperate, because the Jews had nowhere to go. So, from five, 6,000 to double to 12,000, I think eventually went to like 20,000, maybe, something like that, that's all. It's not a tiny group, but on the other hand, it's a substantial group. These are Jewish communities living under control of the Japanese authorities in Manchuria, and also in northern China. I had a guy in my shul, uh, Mr. Rotenberg, Wolf Rotenberg, who ran away from Germany as a kid with his family. He had his bar mitzvah in Tianjin, you know, in China, Manchuria, in those areas. So the question we're dealing with is, what happened to the Jews who found themselves under Japanese control during World War II? As you know, Japan was an ally with Germany, and yet we all know they didn't exactly do the things that the Germans did. 
Why did the J Japanese simply round up all the Jews and kill them? You can't tell me, because Japanese are naturally nice and kind, because they killed zillions of Chinese. The rape of Nanking. You know, when, when um, what do you call it? The Americans uh, did the Billy Doolittle raid. You know what I'm talking about? You know anything about World War II? After Pearl Harbor, FDR, after a few months, sent some bombers from a surprise attack on Tokyo. But they didn't have much fuel, so they bombed Tokyo. About a dozen planes, two dozen planes, and they landed in China, ran away. When the Japanese found they landed in China, they killed a quarter of a million Chinese. A quarter of a million for helping a, a few planes. A quarter of a million. Uh, that's why the Chinese are so angry. I mean, I, I, I can understand that. So anyhow, whatever the case is, um, we're interested in the Jewish angle. Why didn't they hurt the Jews? Right? Now, the truth of the matter is, the Japanese government, which is a bureaucratic government, that was organized bureaucratically, which is very important for the story, they they didn't know, literally, like, what kind of policy to track towards the Jews. They weren't basically anti-Semitic. They didn't like the Jews, but they didn't hate them. They couldn't understand what exactly the problem Hitler has with them. There are many legends about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm cutting, trying to cut through the the chase over here and uh, from the Japanese perspective Japan um, from their perspective they always saw themselves as facing an enemy in the front and in the back if you consider it from their perspective he went back to the 1930s for example Japan has two big enemies Russia to the uh, I guess to the west of Japan and um, America, U.S., to the east. From the Japanese perspective, they're a little island, and they're surrounded by a giant on one side, and by a giant on the other side. And they didn't want that. But that's where they're stuck. Now, the Japanese government figured what you do in terms of international power politics is you try to play with that, and so let's make it a, a deal with, with Hitler, who's on the other side of Russia, that way, instead of Russia boxing us in, we'll box her in, sort of. <clears throat> Get it? Now, the Japanese simply didn't understand. Hitler's not just another person. You make a deal with him, you're in bed with the devil. And you're going to get America super-duper angry at you. But the Japanese didn't hop that. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a failure uh, culturally. They didn't get that. It's like the other cultural failure I mentioned a couple weeks ago in my Pearl Harbor talk. And, um, and the guy who made the treaty with Hitler later came to see. He said it was the biggest mistake of my life. He said that after Pearl Harbor, uh, Matsuoka, the foreign minister. So, one second. Let me say this. If you're Jewish, one of the places... There was a possibility was Manchuria. Let's say it's 1937, 1938, 1939. You have these 6 million Jews in Europe or whatever. You had nowhere to go. Nobody's letting you in. Tiny amount in Palestine, almost nothing. Where are you going to go? And if you don't, Hitler will kill them. Do you know um, the Shragfine uh, of Mendelovich, I remember. He said, look at Japan. He sent a guy, I forget his name, Newman or something. No, the guy from Tervidas. To Manchuria, to meet with Japanese officials over there, who said, and they knew he's an Orthodox Jew, it didn't bother them. And they said, listen, you know, bring all the Jews you want because they'll come with money, they'll help build up the economy, etc., etc. The Jews had no choice but to look at the Japanese as a positive factor in Manchuria because in every town was living these white Russians, these anti-communist Russians, who if they could, would shecked every Jew if the Japanese didn't prevent them from doing so. The Japanese were maintaining the law and order as far as anti-Semitism is concerned. It was a very twisted situation, as you can see. Now, what does that have to do with our hero? Manchuria was run, not directly by the Japanese government, but by a company called the South Manchuria Railway. It's the same way the British, for a long time until Disraeli, ruled India through a company. I know it sounds funny to us, but if you're an American and you know a little bit about your colonial history, the 13 colonies, many of them were owned and administered by companies. 
You see? It's a certain model. Now, the if you're talking about 1938, 39, which are important years for the Jews, and more and more people are coming into uh, Manchuria and to Shanghai all the time, this is before the Mir Yeshiva. Many other Yekas and things like that are going there. Maybe you're descended from them. Uh, the head of the uh, company, the main official, was Matsuoka, Yusuki Matsuoka, who was a very important Kashiwa uh, person, as I said before, in the Japanese governmental circles. He represented him at the League of Nations when they invaded Manchuria and so on and so forth. And uh, Matsuoka said like this, I got a lot of Jews now under my control. I need a Jewish expert. It's a bureaucratic way of thinking about it. Who knows who's the number one Jap Jewish expert in Japan? They said, well, this guy, uh, you know, uh, Katsuji, this guy uh, who studied all this uh, Old Testament and other stuff. He, re he can read Hebrew. So he brought him in. I remember he said he, he offered him a big salary, made a lot of inducements, and he and his family moved there, and they worked for Matsuoka for two years. And that means now this guy, our hero, is in a position to meet Jews, meet Jewish communities, and he only comes with a you know with with a positive. He's I'm here to help, and he intervenes, and 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 he meets Matsuoko, who basically said like this: I got nothing against the Jews. Uh, I am in favor of a treaty with Hitler. That's politics. I have nothing against the Jews, and I want to be very clear about this. And Matsuoka made this speech, a public speech in late 1940 after he signed the treaty with Hitler, and he said, you know. Just because we're in Hitler doesn't mean we buy everything. And I want to say very clearly, Japan does not you know, does not buy the anti-Semitism part. That's not who we are. It's interesting. Now, some of the officials were anti-Semitic. So the Jewish communities living in these areas, in Manchuria and Shanghai, in uh, other places in, in the Chinese coast ruled by Japan, were now totally under the, the, the rishus of the Japanese government and military well, guess what? They find out pretty darn quick who's the Jewish guy on the Japanese staff, and he becomes the go-to guy, our hero. And he helped him. He got this guy out of jail. He got this guy a visa. He got this guy over here. He they organized these conferences where all the Kahilas get together. And uh, he did his best. He made a speech in Hebrew, which freaked everybody out. You know, he, he did his best in years when it really counted to help the Yidden, or all refugees, all along the Chinese coast and, and Manchuria coast. And by now you're talking, I guess if you put it all together, 40,000, 50,000 people all together, you know, um, refugees. And he's the, and he's, you know, he's the Malcolm Mashiach, so to speak. Now he's just an advisor, but as the personal advisor, the top dog, he had a lot of clout. And uh, there were these other Japanese officials trying to undermine him. He wouldn't let them. It was there for two years, um, helping you. So if you're Jewish and you had a positive reception from the Japanese authorities, which you wouldn't have expected, how are you going to trace this to the fact that a guy, this there's a guy who, when he was a boy 30 years ago in Kyoto, had Shilas about Shinto and started reading the Japanese Bible and fell in love with Abramovino and wants to know what happened to the people of Abramovino and ever since then is interested in that and wants to know about the Talmud. I mean, it's that's a Hashkacha practice story if I ever heard one. I mean, what are the chances of what I just said? What are the chances of that? <clears throat> now, after two years, Matsuoko leaves because he becomes the foreign minister. That's when he makes a treaty with Hitler and a treaty with Stalin. <laughs> this guy was out of a job. But but remember, he was a buddy terms with a big shot, Matsuoko. I'm saying this for a reason. <laughs> okay? He knows the foreign minister of Japan. He moves back to Japan with his family. He wants to settle down and write a book. And then he gets a call. Now it's 1940 from Kobe, which is a big city in Japan, a port city of a million people. And I think you know where I'm going. This is when the, the Jews who were fleeing from Lithuania and those places start to get those passports from the Sugihara guy, the Japanese guy, and flee from Hitler across Soviet Union. Now, some of you may not know exactly what I'm talking about, so I'll use simple terminology that you'll be familiar with. Mir Yeshiva. Now, it's a lot more than Mir Yeshiva. But if I say Mir Yeshiva, people immediately say, oh, Shanghai, you get it, you know. But the whole wave of people, about 5,000, were able 
to run away across because they for various reasons and they were able legally to escape from Lithuania, Latvia, and those places with these funny passports and go across Russia. It's just before Hitler invaded Russia and get to the Japanese side, the Kobe. But in Japan, you only are allowed to stay for 10 days and then move on. And there's a community of about 50 families, Chamishim Mishpachot, in Kobe. So they're nice enough people, but all of a sudden thousands of people, refugees are showing up. They can't handle that. They need help with the authorities. And so they telephone our hero, and they say, listen, come on up here, please. And he dropped everything and went up to Kobe. They meet these people. Now, he said they look strange to me. Never saw from Jews with beards and black coats and all this kind of stuff. You know, he's talking about Robert Cutler and all these other people. Right? It's not the typical Jews he saw, but okay. And they're sleeping on the street, some of them. That was really rough. And the main part is that they don't have reshows from the authorities. It's only a transit visa for a few days. And they got to, they were just getting the heck out of Europe. Now they got to get permission to enter America or Canada or maybe Israel if you're lucky. Or this, but they'll go anywhere, you know. But they can't stay just here. And if you have nowhere to go, then dump them in Shanghai. But at least Shanghai, but at least go somewhere. <laughs> the Japanese authorities said you got to leave, which means the only place they can go is back to Hitler. So his mom is desperate. Okay, so they asked this guy. So he, it's a Valdega story. He says like this. He said, "Okay, let me see what I can do, not for money." <laughs> He goes to Tokyo, and he goes to the foreign ministry, and he goes to all the bureaucrats in charge. This department, that department, they give him the runaround. So ordinarily, that's he just screwed. That's it. No, Hashkacha Pratis was that he had been the close advisor and their friend of Matsuoko, who now is the foreign minister. So he can go to the top. He goes to the top guy, and Matsuoko basically says like this: "Come with me out of the building. Let's go to a restaurant." Nobody can hear us. He goes to the restaurant. Matsuoka says, like, this is so true, so bureaucratic. He says, look, I don't want to hurt these Jews, but I can't break the laws, and we can't show any particular sympathy for them, but I'm not I'm not their enemy. I'm not their enemy. So let me tell you a practical part. It's like this. Kobe is in a certain state. I'll use American terminology. They call it a prefecture. I'll call it like a state and federal government. So I say, we're the federal government. Kobe is in a certain state. The federal government cannot change its rules. But you want to know something? If you go on state level and the state wants to play around with the rules, we in the federal government won't look. We'll do no at, don't ask, don't tell. You, you get what I'm saying? So according to the rules of Japan, they can't stay. If the local guys want to pull some shtick, I can tell you, as the foreign minister, the federal government will not intervene. Okay? So... And that was with a wink and a whisper. So he immediately went down there and he calculated he needed a lot of money because how are you going to do it? This is Japanese style. But it's probably true around the world. When I say around true around the world, it's not so easy to bribe the federal government. It's not so hard to bribe the state and local governments. Of course, in Maryland, we have totally honest, and Baltimore particularly, everybody knows nobody can be bribed over here. But in other states, I'm told, it's not like that. <laughs> the... the and so he said like this, I need a lot of money. He goes to a brother-in-law. He's a rich guy. It's just amazing. And never gave him a penny. And the brother-in-law never approved of him becoming a Christian and all that. And he says, listen, i got to help these Jewish guys out. And here's the plan. I need a big expense account. You know I'm not using it for me. Uh, you, do you want to do a mitzvah? I mean, he didn't use those words, of course. He's Japanese. Do you want to do a mitzvah? The guy said, you know something? Money's there to burn. I'll do the mitzvah. That's incredible. And he gave him 300,000 yen, <clears throat> which is a big sum of money. <clears throat> With the money, he goes to Kobe, and he goes to the local police department and the immigration department. And he says, guys, I'm here to show you time. I want to talk to you about something. But you know something? Let's not constrain a business. Let me take you out to the best restaurant. Okay, let's go to Delmonico's or whatever, you know, the fanciest, schmanciest Japanese restaurant. And he wines and dines them. And it's a booze, and it's the best food, and the geisha girls, and so forth and so on. They say, boy, that was a party. Let's do this again, you know, Wednesday night. Takes him out on Wednesday night. After three, four times like that, he's everybody's pal. 
because he's taking him out for free meal. Nobody doesn't like free meal. And a free this and a free that without going into details. By the time he finished soaking them and woking them and smoking them and soaking them, he's like, yes, maybe you'll do me a favor. What's the favor? He said, why don't you give the Jews, you know, just don't ask, don't tell. Don't, don't, don't kick them out. Let them just stay longer. They say, you know, you're such a good time, Charlie. Okay, who cares? Well, we'll let it do. And that's why all these Jews who went to Japan were able to have the time over there and never get kicked out and never get arrested and never get in trouble with the cops. Because this guy, just on his own, because he liked the Jewish people, because he read about it in the Japanese Bible back when he was a kid, look at the chesed he did for them. He helped 5,000, 6,000 Jews, many of whom are famous Rabbanim, including the Mir Yeshiva and the others, who were there for him later. And uh, and nobody knew, I'm sure nobody knew the story why. The the, the person who di- who discovered how to um, get the visas that were legal, you know, from Sugihara, was the Mizrahi leader in in Vilna, was it? In Lithuania, uh, Varhaftig, who later on was a minister in the Israeli government. And it was a big macher in the Mizrahi movement. Uh, Zerach Varhaftig. <clears throat> he was a, a big uh, Mizrahi guy. He actually signed the Declaration of Independence. His father was one of the biggest Talmudic Chacham in Eastern Europe. Yeruchim Bar Haftig, maybe you've heard of him. He was a favorite of Chaim Brisker and all the others. And he learned in his kola. So uh, this Bar Haftig, he was one of this group that went there, and he engaged in long discussions with this with our hero, talking about Judaism and the other thing. But it wasn't so easy because he couldn't speak Yiddish, you know. And... Uh, they said, well, we'll keep the cash up in the future. Verhoeven was able to escape to Canada as a result of this. Now, this took place in 40 and 41. By late 41, all the Jews had moved on. Either they got to American places like that. He talked, he met Hirschsprung, you know, you know, or they got to Shanghai if they had nowhere else to go. And then this guy went, a part of the delegation... Or he had been in Shanghai working for Matsuoka, yeah. So he knew the whole situation. Now he moved back to Japan. A few months later comes Pearl Harbor. Right? Notice he, he, he returned, what I mean is he returned back to whatever business he was doing, which actually wrote a history book of the Jewish people and uh, trying to explain Judaism to the Japanese. Right? And then comes Pearl Harbor and Japan's at war. And he spends... The year is 42, 43, 44. Mom's when the war was going on. Not in the military, as a civilian. Writing about Jewish topics. Now, you have to understand, Hitler was an ally of Japan. The, the Germans had a big German embassy. And half the embassy was spending its time giving anti-Semitic propaganda. They paid speakers to go over the country and say it's all the fault of the Jews. I mean, you can just imagine if a Nazi-sponsored guy comes to your town and makes a speech in Japan, you know what it's going to say. The whole idea was deliberately to poison the minds of the Japs. It's terrible. Our hero, just on his own, Nishib said, this is wrong. And he went and formed himself a one-man true squad and went and gave speeches all over Japan, connected this, that it's not the Jews' fault and the Jews are okay. <laughs> it's amazing. Nobody paid him. Nobody told him to do it. It's incredible. Plus, he wrote a book, which I guess you'd say would be called The Truth About the Jews. <laughs> Even as a story there, that a cop came in in one of his speeches, and everybody thought he's going to get arrested, and by the time the speech was over, a Japanese cop went up to him and said, yes, I found your words very enlightening. I'm really happy. I took notes. Not, not for cynic, cynical reasons. Right? <laughs> However, if you know anything about World War II, as 44 came around, and the Japanese started to seriously lose to the Americans, then they start freaking out at home, and they started becoming more repressive. And without going through all the details, our hero is eventually arrested in 45, I guess, late 44, early 45, is arrested by the Japanese Gestapo, they called the Kempitai. Kempitai was like a thought police, you know. And they were to make sure that everybody's loyal. And uh, they started torturing him. Again, he had a nace. After he was tortured, one of his friends came in, who was a macher in the Kempatai, and said, you know, let this guy go, you got the wrong guy. And he was out, but he but he said, I guess you got to run, run away. You, can't, you know, you're on a wanted list. And he was on a wanted list, 
And there's no reason you should know Japanese history. The people who are on their wanted list, um, how should I put it? When Japan surrendered, there was a few days before they announced they're giving up and then before the Americans under General MacArthur actually arrived, took over the country. In those few days, they killed all the people on their hit list. Get it as a as a final act of being a schmo. You see? So if he would have hang around, they would kill him too. But he was smart enough to realize this. And so he ran away with his family to Manchuria. First of all, if you know what's going on in Japan in 44 and especially 45, it's a mass starvation. The Americans were very uh, successful in turning the tables on the Japanese. They hit us on Pearl Harbor, but we got them back. And besides all the islands that they took over the Americans, they blockaded Japan, sunk all their merchant vessels, sunk 99% of their navy. No food is coming in. And so people went crazy, dying from malnutrition all over the country. <laughs> Starvation was a big deal. Just the emperor was so tough. He didn't care about the suffering of the people, so he kept going by jerk. You know, it's a lot of what-ifs. And so our hero went with his family to Manchuria, across the sea, which is all held by Japan, and there there's food and things like that. But he went at the wrong time. It's near the end of the war, and before long, the Russians invade, and wherever the Russians go, they steal everything, they rape everybody, they pillage, and this, and that, and the other. He had a very rough time surviving under the Russians, because they say you're Japanese, you're the enemy, and he's there from 45 to 46 or something. Here he's saved by the Jews, by the Eden. And so he said, the Jews heard about him, and all the favorites done for the Jewish people, and there were these Lubavitchers, believe it or not, who had stores, and they hid him from the Russians, and did him all kind of favors, which saved his life mamish. You know? So not only was he pro-Jewish and helped the Jewish people without being asked, but got rewarded for doing it by Yidin, who at least understood that somebody like this deserves to be, you know, you have to repay him. You get it? It's interesting. They had these, how do I know they're Lubavitchers? He says, I met them 20 years later in Kfar Chabad. What was that tell you, you know? What does that tell you? The Russian Jews ran away. They had a store, you know, made a business, this and that and the other. Uh, he helped plenty of Jews and made sure there was a guy, Kaufman, who was the head of the Jewish community, and he was arrested by the Japanese towards the end of the war because they heard him speaking Russian, you know, as if he's a, as that's a crime. And uh, he, <laughs> he saved him by going to the police headquarters and saying, I heard you got a, a special present from the emperor, which is true, uh, a, a picture from the emperor. And Kaufman said, yeah, I got it last week. Oh, when the police heard he got a picture from the emperor, oh, your Yochajo, they let him go. You see, so... He did the Jews a lot of favors. I'm not telling you all the stories. So they owed him favors also, but I'm happy to say that they came through and paid it and repaid it. Let me just change this for a second. Uh, where did I leave off? So, the, uh, so he was in in 45 and 46, suffering through the um, Russian occupation and then the Chinese communist, the Mao Zedong occupation in Manchuria. Look, you have to understand the Japanese behaved horribly to the locals. Therefore, now was revenge time. I mean, I understand. It's not our hero's fault, but if you're Japanese, that's the wrong group to be in 45 and 46 in China because they did their Holocaust era. The Japanese had perpetrated a Holocaust in China. <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Uh, so he had to suffer through all that business and then finally gets repatriated to Japan. And he said, now the Kempatai is going to come and get me, you know. Uh, that's all we need, but at least so, in Japan. And it's the Americans. It's, it's after the war. It's MacArthur. There is no Kempatai. There is no Japanese police. MacArthur abolished the army, so the army can't get you. MacArthur abolished the Navy. Till today, the Navy can't get you. MacArthur, General MacArthur abolished the police. There's no police to arrest you. There's like a native. It's just hard economically, you know, hard economically. And he had bad health and things like that. But he said, like all the Japanese said this, he said the American occupation was the best thing that ever happened to us. This country is the only country in the world that I know of where the people like being occupied. To this day, as we speak now, there's still American military bases in Germany. The Germans don't want the Americans to leave. You ever heard of that? <laughs> you ever heard of that? I think there might be a base still in Japan or something. They don't want the Americans to leave. 
usually the person who occupies your country won them out. There's never, you know, this country did quite a job after World War II. Now, I don't understand. At this point, they didn't make it clear in the book. There's obviously something must have happened in the 50s. Uh, because until now, he was super interested in Judaism. But then again, I mean, he didn't know any Jews or whatever. And in the world I just described, there wasn't any opportunity to be Megayer. But of course, by the time you get to 1950, there is a Medinat Israel. And uh, Japan and Israel established diplomatic relations in 52, I think. And um, so there's an Amer- Israeli embassy in, in Japan. There are no Jews there. I'm not talking about the American businessmen who are there for whatever. I'm talking about, you know, Japanese Jews. You know, Japanese who are Jewish. Um, I mean, under MacArthur, there's a lot of Christian, and he popped up, which is understandable. And, um, but there is a state of Israel. And who's the big modern state of Israel? Who's the minister of religion? For Haftig, who I mentioned before. Because this is the Ben-Gurion area, and it was the Mizrahi. And I remember he was the, the minister of religion. And so he made the arrangements that to bring this guy, who must have indicated, so I really want to go and be Maguire. There's no basin in, in, in Japan. And so they flew him to Israel. And he was 60 years old. And not in great health. Is Maguire there? He writes the book. He says, here, <laughs> here I am sitting on the circumcision table. I say, okay, you can stop right there, Jack. <laughs> you know, um, But he was, he was, they mauled him when he was 60 years old. Uh, I remember the best asked him, what about your family? And he said, I guess in Japan, the wife does whatever the husband says. So my, wasn't, my wife won't share what I'm doing. And the Kachaba, now he's, he died in 74 in New York City. So he must have tried, as best as I can tell, to make a go of it in Japan. He thought that he would start a movement and get a lot of Japanese, lot of Japanese to become Jewish. That didn't happen as far as I know. There are, I see, like you see sometimes, these parades of Japanese that come that like Israel. Do you ever see that? Uh, I don't know. I never paid so much attention. You see them at the Kotel every once in a while in the, in the newspaper articles and things like this. There are Israel lovers. I don't think it's connected with him. But it might be. Religion in general, as they say, organized religion is not strong in Japan these days, which means there might be interest in other areas. He eventually died in New York, so he knows he must move to the United States. I imagine, I'm just thinking out loud, a guy like him probably, in his older years, he wasn't a young man, probably made money by traveling around and speaking in, in temples and synagogues and things like that, you know, uh, Hadassah meetings, I suppose. Because a Japanese Jew is uh, is unusual at that time. You know, it is. Especially, like I said before, he didn't do this for marriage. He didn't do this for a moment. His mom is a Garrett Sedek, what I'm describing. The interesting thing is, I don't think he knew Judaism that well, but he... I don't know if he knew Judaism that well, because... Uh, he says there's no, no important difference between Orthodox and conservative reform. But that's our perspective. Uh, I never met the guy, so did he keep everything? Oh, now, I want to be clear, his garrison was 100% Orthodox. It was the original line. But uh, maybe he looked at Kostros and all this as a kind of Shinto. I don't know. You know, I can't tell. But uh, one thing that's um, overarching in all this to me is... Ordinarily, uh, it's just an interesting personal story. I wouldn't spend time with it. But he had his five minutes of fame, so to speak, and he used it. Uh, there's a person who had his own life and was born in 1899, 1974. Fine. But for about four or five years, from, I'd say, 1938 to 1944, something like that, he mattered a lot in Jewish history. Um, he was at the right place at the right time to help all these refugees coming through, including... Byron Cutler, Mary Yeshiva, and all these other types. Um, he was there to help in his way when he had the time in um, Shanghai, which was a large Jewish community, as we know, during the war. He fought against anti-Semitism on his own dime. Nobody paid him. In Japan during World War II, almost got him killed. I mean, uh, that's just remarkable. And I can only assume that this helped have the Ashpa that... Although the Jews never knew what the Japanese would do, Lamaisa, looking back in, in retrospect, they never did persecute, per, perpetrate a Holocaust. 
against the Jews. The Japanese made a holocaust against other groups, but they didn't bother the Jews. Not really. Not really. And considering the fact they had all these Hitler guys running up and down, spreading all this poison against the Jews all the time, that's quite a statement. It's quite, re quite remarkable. So some people are of the nature, I mean, probably all of us, they have your five minutes of fame, and the question is, do you use it? What do you do with the five minutes of fame that you have? Do you use it? Um, he did, okay? The rest of the story is anticlimactic. I mean, it's interesting on a personal level that eventually, at the age of 60, was able to go to Yushalayim. <laughs> By the way, there's such a great Jewish story there. <laughs> I was laughing. He's in Yushalayim. This is Israel of 1958-59. He's there for four months. And they took him around here, took him around there. And I think it was in Tel Aviv, maybe on the beach. I mean, the boardwalk. And he's walking with these other guys. And this Israeli guy goes over to him and says, like Oh, you're Japanese. You know, I, there's another Japanese guy here. I read in the paper, a big scholar who's visiting in Israel. Did you meet him? <laughs> the Kuni level, you know. And he said, well, I don't know. He says, oh, maybe you'll meet him. You know, it's funny. You look very much like him. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> Like from hell, you know. Uh, but you know his his personal story is 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 important at a personal level. But what's most important is that before he came Jewish, he grasped what I would say is the essence of Judaism, which is not simply monotheism, but you have to help Klal Yisrael. That's the interesting part to me. You know, he could have simply said, "Belief in one God and Abraham and all this one thing." But it doesn't mean I have to go out, you know, and uh, take my own time and money and take away from family to help these refugees with beards I never met before or to try to run around the country and make speeches and write books in my own country, you know, uh, to be a Jew lover. But you see, from his intense reading, he was an intense scholar of the Jewish sources, he saw that there's no Yiddishkeit without Avitz Yisrael, which to me is a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, aspect of his story. And in this respect, really, he was Mamashe Garrett said it. Anyway, I thought it was an interesting story. Once again, I want to thank Ari and Heather. I'm sorry, it's only, it was on a sad occasion uh, for the uh, recent passing of Izzy Sus, uh, Heather's uncle. And hoping that Shum will have an Aliyah. With that, I wish. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.